from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. President Biden's choice to lead the Office of Personnel Management is Kieran Ahuja. She served as chief of staff at OPM during the Obama administration, led the OPM landing team for the Biden transition. Federal News Network reports she served as chief uh, before her chief of staff assignment as the head of the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. A review of five major defense programs is underway at the Pentagon. Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks ordered the review so the agency could influence the FY 2022 budget. Defense News reports the five areas include the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program. 79 vendors are in on the latest round of awards in the General Services Administration's second-generation IT blanket purchase agreement. It's the second time GSA has made awards on the contract. NextGov reports GSA awarded the deal originally to 75 companies in November 2019, but it pulled the contract after a wave of protests. Members of Congress of both parties agree the policies governing the federal workforce need work. The debate at a House Oversight and Reform Government Operations Subcommittee hearing this week, though, seemed to indicate that's about where the agreement ends. Tony Reardon is the president of the National Treasury Employees Union. He submitted written testimony to the subcommittee for that hearing. Tony, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What was the message that you wanted to send in your testimony overall to the committee? Well, first of all, Francis, thank you very, very much for uh, having me. I love being on your show. You know, um, the overall message... Um, I believe is that the American people deserve a federal workforce that is staffed with skilled, experienced, nonpartisan professionals. And we support the effort in Congress and by President Biden to reverse some of the policies of the last four years and make sure that we are once again recruiting and retaining the workers that our uh, country needs. I'm talking about scientists and engineers, accountants, auditors, law enforcement officers, inspectors, information technology specialists, et cetera. The list, of course, goes on. And to that end, we provided them with a list of how to make federal service even more attractive uh, for the best and brightest employees. And our list really falls into um, these uh, four broad categories, pay and benefits that make it more competitive with the private sector, um, a stronger voice for employees in the workplace, um, robust COVID health and safety protocols, and making sure that the system remains one that is based on merit and skill and not on patronage um, or politics. What do you take away from either this hearing, from discussions with members on both sides of the aisle or whatever, about what people can agree on on the Hill, even if it's just a little slice of all of these issues? Do you see agreement now to try to, to move forward on some of the things that that you've talked about, that other people have talked about? Is there agreement at all on federal workforce issues on the Hill? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, Francis, um, if there is widespread agreement on maybe some of the same things that, that uh, um, you know, we're, we're pushing. What I would suggest, though, is that I think we can probably reach some agreement um, on some of the things, you know, for example, um, I believe that um, many people on Capitol Hill would agree that federal employees deserve a fair pay raise. 
Um, and you know, if the FAIR Act were to be um, uh, put into law, that would bring a 3.2% pay increase in uh, uh, for federal employees in 2022. And I think it would start to make up for years of uh, freezes and below market raises. And so why do I think there can be some agreement um, on Capitol Hill about this? And why is this uh, important? Because, you know, as the Federal Salary Council, and it, that's a body that I sit on, and it's, and it's certainly uh, um, got folks from both sides of the aisle on it, um, federal employees now earn 23.11% less than their counterparts in the private sector. Um, healthcare premiums keep going up, including um, an average this year of 4.9% for federal employees. And so these below market raises and increase in healthcare costs, all of this makes recruiting and retaining the best and brightest extraordinarily difficult. And I believe that everybody shares the view that the American people um, deserve and should get the outstanding service that federal employees can deliver if they have the tools and the resources and they're paid appropriately so that we get the best and brightest. Um, I, I think everybody can agree on that. And I would also add, Francis, I think it's important that um, we expand the new paid parental uh, leave law into paid family leave. One of the challenges I think in the 15 years or so that I've been following this as far as the pay thing goes is that there are studies on that indicate what you say that the disparity is 20 to 30 percent on but both directions in some cases federal employees make a lot more um, you, you your written testimony includes a lot of material about COVID safety what's your sense of how the administration is doing at providing materials for people that have to go to the office now and in preparing for people potentially to start to come back to work uh, in the office over the summer and into the fall. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's an uh, an excellent uh, issue to raise. And so let me let me sum it up like this, Francis. Um, we believe that it is essential for um, federal agencies to continue maximum telework where possible until the pandemic subs uh, subsides and vaccines are widely distributed. Um, we also believe that um, uh, agencies should expand MaxiFlex scheduling um, for federal employees, make necessary physical and scheduling, uh, make sure that physical and scheduling measures um, are in place in the workplace to ensure adequate social distancing. Make certain that vaccines and testing are available to federal employees to maintain um, cleaning protocols and ensure that PPE supplies are in workplaces, to notify all employees if a coworker tests uh, positive or has been asked to quarantine uh, because of exposure, to expand additional um, emergency leave for federal employees, um, which by the way, as, as you know, um, expired on December 31st of 2020. And the final thing that I would add on this, Francis, is to provide administrative time for employees to receive the vaccine. That is an incentive to get people out to be vaccinated. And after all, that's what we, what we all want, right? That's what's important to help this country get out in front of the, uh, uh, this pandemic and bring it to um, as quick an end as possible. Tony Reardon, thanks very much for coming on. Appreciate you sharing your testimony with us. Thank you, Francis, very much for having me. 
can find a link to Tony's testimony at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, sharing cyber responsibilities across government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, who does what when it comes to preventing the next big breach? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. President Biden has not yet named the first national cyber director, but the White House is working on a 60-day review to decide how to structure the new role. Suzanne Spaulding, senior advisor of Homeland Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's former undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security. Suzanne, welcome. It's great to see you. You're the perfect person, I think, to help me understand what this mosaic looks like all across government, both civilian and military, for cybersecurity. Obviously, the National Cyber Coordinator, Cyber Director, will be at the top of that food chain. But who does what in an ideal world or in a mature environment at some point in the future, Suzanne? Yeah, Francis, it's the right question to ask because we do inevitably have this mission distributed throughout our government. And so it is important to understand how these various parts will relate to each other. I, I think it's uh, unfortunate that we haven't yet seen a national cyber director named. I think it's really important that that uh, be done as soon as possible. I think facts are developing on the ground that will have an impact on the ability of this director to step in and succeed. But, um, but basically, I think the, the roles are the departments and agencies ought to have the lead with respect to cyber activities in their mission areas. And they ought to be supported and empowered, particularly in the interagency roles that they have, by this national cyber director who has the backing of the White House and the president, right, and that imprimatur to bring. The national cyber director should uh, ideally develop an overarching cyber strategy uh, for the government, and that should guide the development in each of these then departments and agencies of their own strategies within their specific mission areas. So State Department should develop an, an, our strategy for international engagement on cybersecurity. That doesn't mean State Department does all of those international activities, right? They have to do this in coordination with all of the other departments and agencies that have very important international activities going on. And CISA similarly. CISA has to develop that national strategy for the security and resilience of critical infrastructure. They have the lead for civilian government, uh, federal government, for working with state, local, territorial, and tribal governments, for businesses, non-governmental entities. They have important technical exchanges they do internationally. So uh, we can walk through each of the departments and agencies, but they each have important roles that include interagency coordination, and the cyber director needs to empower them to do that. Is one model on the civilian side, Suzanne, the, for example, the CSER office at the Energy Department that interacts with um, energy providers' uh, grid across the country, is that the kind of model that you're referring to when you think about each agency having autonomy and, and uh, kind of turf in its particular area of mission? Yep. Uh, Francis, DOE, Department of Energy, is the sector-specific agency that's been given the lead for the energy sector. And they are the sector experts there. And they, they are going to lead those activities. CISA is going to, the, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, is going to support them 
by providing overall guidance, by providing some technical expertise, but importantly, by providing uh, analysis about interdependencies, how the inner energy sector relates to financial sector and the transportation sector and those, those dependencies between those sectors. Uh, that is a really important kind of analysis that CISA, with its overarching expertise, can bring to bear to help Department of Energy. Department of Treasury is another one. They are the lead for the financial services sector. Um, so, so that's exactly right. Do you expect to see the National Cyber Director have uh, a voice or have some level of autonomy regarding military uh, cyber efforts too? Will, for example, General Nakasone report to this per person, excuse me, or interact with this person? Not as envisioned by either the Cyberspace Solarium Commission on which I served or uh, more importantly, really, by Congress who enacted the legislation to create the National Cyber Director. Um, the Title 10, which is the military activities, a shorthand for that, and Title 50, which is shorthand for the intelligence uh, activities, um, will still fall under the purview of the National Security Council. And this National Cybersecurity Director sits next to, but outside of, the National Security Council. So this National Security uh, uh, Council Deputy Director, uh, Ann Neuberger, for example, should have the lead on coordinating those uh, military and intelligence activities and making sure that the National Cyber Director has complete visibility into those activities because our defensive strategy, if you will, our protective strategy, our overarching cybersecurity plan has to be informed by their activities. And frankly, their activities have to be taking into account all of the equities, for example, of the private sector and civilian government agencies and an understanding of what those plans and capabilities are. We can't have stovepipes build around those two sets of activities. That visibility word that you used, Suzanne, was the one I was going to ask you since those two people are sitting next to each other. Does each have visibility into what the other person is doing? It sounds like that's critical in your view. It's absolutely essential. And, you know, of course, in a perfect world, and we don't live in the perfect world, in a perfect world, you would have named your CISA director, your uh, deputy director in the NSC, and your national cybersecurity director all at the same time. You, Before naming them publicly, you would have sat them down and said, look, these are the way, this is how this is going to operate. And you all are going to be best friends and you're going to communicate and provide visibility to each other. And, you know, you set those parameters right at the outset. Um, so, I, you know, I do think that will be an important task for the president, for his chief of staff, for the leadership there to make it very clear that these folks have to provide visibility to each other across the interagency. Suzanne Spaulding, thanks very much as always. Thank you, Francis. Thanks for having me. Up next, countering major threats in space. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why the next Pearl Harbor might be in space and how to stop it. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, says the next Pearl Harbor could happen in space. 
The Space Force now leads the effort against anti-satellite capabilities from U.S. adversaries. Bradley Bowman, senior director for the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation of the Defense of Democracies uh, and writing uh, on the FTD website. Bradley, welcome. Thanks for coming on. It's good to see you again. Is this concept of a space Pearl Harbor new that General Milley is talking about? Or is this something that's existed for a period of time and we maybe haven't given it the attention it deserves? It's a great question, and the answer is clear. It is not new. You know, there was a congressionally mandated commission 20 years ago in 2001 that uh, warned of that very thing. And uh, unfortunately, since that time, in the last two decades, the U.S. has not taken sufficient action. And as a result, just two months ago, as you said, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff again sounded the same alarm. He said, we're in danger of a space Pearl Harbor. You write in this piece something that 20 years ago would have been very juicy science fiction. You write about maneuverable Chinese or Russian killer satellites, and you write these increasing threats to America's early warning satellites are not hyperbolic horror, horror stories swapped by paranoid Pentagon analysts at lunch. What are some of the real world manifestations that we're seeing of these potential threats? You know, sometimes when people like me highlight things like this, there, there are some folks that might want to dismiss that at all. Oh, that's just someone, you know, trying to, to scare people. But, uh, you know, the National Defense Strategy that was published in 2018 uh, said that, you know, that the United States has to build a more ready and lethal force able to deploy, survive, operate, maneuver, and regenerate in all domains, not just air, land, and sea that so many of us often focus on, but also in space and cyberspace. And, you know, this threat, this this threat of a space Pearl Harbor from a China or Russia is not new. It's been coming for a long time. And that's kind of what makes it worse. You know, back in 2007, right, China conducted a ballistic missile uh, exercise against a satellite and successfully destroyed it. Apparently, Beijing was not concerned about creating hundreds or thousands of pieces of space debris that will be in orbit for decades, but they successfully did it. And since then, we've seen Russia developing the same capabilities it's not just missiles being launched from the ground to take out satellites. They're also developing what's called on-orbit capabilities, the capabilities for satellites to kill other satellites. Uh, you can do that via jamming. You can do that via directed energy or, or lasers, a whole variety of ways. And China and Russia are moving out. You don't have to take my word for it. If you read the writings of uh, scholars uh, in uh, China associated with the People's Liberation Army, they're saying the goal here is to, quote, blind and deafen the enemy. And that enemy they're talking about is us. To that end, you write this, the Space Force should field larger satellite constellations made up of dozens or even hundreds of relatively inexpensive and disposable satellites. I key on the word uh, disposable of that entire sentence, Brad. Am I reading it wrong? No, it's, you know, you know there's a lot of uh, hardworking patriotic people that are trying to help secure our country, but there's also bureaucratic inertia. You know, and the, the previous administration stood up the Space Force, it stood a Space Command. And what we don't need is, is these new institutions to kind of make the same mistakes, sadly, that we've seen too often from some of the other services where we have acquisition programs that take forever and go way over budget. They promise to be agile and streamlined. But the key task for the Space Force, as I see it, and for Space Command, is to make sure that we retain access to space. I mean, our adversaries understand that the U.S. military is increasingly reliant on satellites for so much of what we do, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, core missions like missile defense are increasingly reliant on space. And they are not willing to kind of sit by and let America enjoy its comparative advantage in space. And that's why they've been so busy. You know, there was, a, there was an anecdote a little over a year ago that your viewers might appreciate 
uh, the Russians launched a satellite. They said, hey, don't worry, you know, this is just a satellite that uh, we're going to use to kind of do maintenance checks on our own satellites. Well, short time later, guess what happened? In a kind of a Russian nesting, nesting doll incident, that satellite gave birth to another one. And then what did that satellite do? It sidled up right next to a U.S. military satellite and then proceeded a short time later to, to launch a projectile, a projectile that U.S. Space Command considered a weapons test. So, you know, this is not the Gulf War of 91 here. Uh, we cannot assume that we're going to be able to assemble our forces unchallenged and then have, uh, you know, access to GPS and everything else. And so we need the Space Force to develop more resilient infrastructure in space. And if we put all of our eggs in one or, you know, in a, in a small number of satellites, uh, then it's going to be that much easier for China or Russia in a Taiwan scenario, in a scenario related to the Baltics, uh, to attack our satellites. And, there, and if we have time, there's an anecdote from Iraq that really demonstrates the importance of getting this right. Um, we do have just a moment left. And so I want to ask you, how do we measure uh, progressively that Space Force is not getting bogged down in some of those areas in which you suggested the other forces have, and that we find out five years out, 10 years out, that we are indeed bogged down and it's too late? We have to hold them to what they say they're going to do, to be agile and streamlined and innovative. And that means really kind of revamping how we do acquisition. Early signs are positive that they're working with industry in creative new ways. Um, so just really holding them accountable to, uh, to the acquisition timelines, the milestones, filling things quickly, um, trying to create uh, that, that broad network of redundant capabilities that could survive assault. Uh, working with private industry more effective and working with allies. You know, the first year for Space Force, they really focused on kind of collaboration within the U.S. interagency. In their second year, they're focused on working with international partners. I'm going to watch that closely. Uh, NATO has stood up some uh, interesting institutions. They've declared, they've declared space a warfighting domain. There's great opportunities with Japan. So I think getting acquisitions right and, and working with our tech-savvy democratic allies to secure common interests in space will be key going forward. Brad, great to have you back. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. You can find a link to Brad's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. And if you missed any of our programs, they're on our website, too. You can get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.